Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This time it's episode 87, and we're going to talk about that very sad day when you have to sell your van. And, and I just had to do this. It is very sad. We're also going to talk about how to remove bolts from both sides at once when you're by yourself. A product review of that thing we see on TV all the time, Flex Seal, and a hidden treasure at Ikea. Hello everyone, welcome back. It has been a very momentous, eventful week for me because this week I sold my van. My Pagurus, the mighty Pagurus the 2014 NV200 SV that I converted, which actually led to this podcast, is now no longer mine. I sold it to a delightful woman by the name of, shall we call her, Ms. Darling. And I cannot be more thrilled with how this went because this person, Ms. Darling, is the absolute perfect person to now become the steward of Pagurus. And she's taken it home, and she's making some changes to make it fit her lifestyle, which is different from mine. And it's going to be her permanent home, or at least her full-time home, for herself and her pup as they travel the country. And I am thrilled. But I'm also sad, because, you know, it's like kind of losing a family member. When you spend all this time building out a van and traveling across the country in it, and then you have to say goodbye... Well, it's hard. It, it is very difficult. It, and it's especially hard for me right now because last week I had two vans, one of which was ready to go and the other which was half done. And now I've only got a half done van and I can't actually go anywhere till I finish that. And the temperature has been too hot for me to do much work and I'm a little grumpy about it. But okay, we're not going to focus on the grumpy. We're going to focus on the good. And that is, I am going to share with you some things I learned about selling your van and some tips and tricks that might help you and may not. I don't know. We'll see. As you know, as everyone has talked about, the market is crazy right now. Everything is super expensive. Inventories are low. And I continue to expect this to change in the next couple of months. I think with the summer coming to a close, some people are going to give up on van life, they're going to give up on their projects, and there are going to be a lot of half-finished vans for sale very shortly. In fact, I've already started to see them in some of the marketplaces. That said, if you have a van to sell, sell it now. Now is probably the best time ever to sell a van in the entire history of selling vans. I am very happy with the price I got for Pagurus. I won't reveal it here to keep things private between me and the seller, but I thought it was a good price. It was a fair price. I don't think I could have gotten that price if it wasn't this year. I sold it for more than I would have considered selling it for last year. I had actually many people trying to buy the van at once. And it was a little tricky because the first few people who tried to buy it needed financing. And so here is the first tip. If you are selling your converted van, now this is for converted vans, know that banks probably will not finance a loan for a converted van, at least not an auto loan. If somebody has home equity or something like that, or they can get a personal loan, that's separate. But a secured auto loan, they generally will only do on newer vehicles or vehicles that have not been converted at close to the blue book price. 
The problem is that banks don't know about converted vans value. They don't have the data necessary to make a decision on it, so they simply won't do it. And I had two people who offered to buy the van at full price who couldn't because their bank said no. So know that. That's an important thing. Find out right up front if someone actually is paying cash or needs financing and then clue them in. But the thing most people are probably wondering is where do you sell your van? So there are some obvious places. There is Craigslist, there's Facebook Marketplace, there's eBay, and there is RV Trader. There's also a few other littler sites like Conversion Trader, which specializes just in vans. But the van inventory has been so low that I don't think Conversion Trader actually works right now because they just haven't had very much, so people don't see them as a resource. So let's go down those one by one. If you list your van on Craigslist, you will get a lot of attention, but a lot of it is poor quality attention. Selling your van takes time, it takes effort, and if you get a hundred inquiries on your van, 99 of which are just speculators or people looking for a deal or people who just want to see more pictures, and I'll talk about that in a little bit more detail later, Craigslist is going to be tough. Yes, it's free, but it is a hassle. You are going to get the strangest things going on with Craigslist, and it is the least safe way, I think, to sell a van. So, yeah, sure, Craigslist can be useful, but hold on and I'll tell you how. Facebook Marketplace is also very similar. Facebook Marketplace has so many scams on it right now, but again, it's free, and I'll tell you how to take advantage of that. Let's talk about eBay. In my opinion, uh, eBay is great for buying and not so great for selling for vehicles. Their fees are very complicated. They're all over the place. And they're not the same as if you're selling, say, like a lamp. Uh, cars have their own special category on eBay. It's basically 25 bucks to list it, and then you pay a percentage of the deposit. It's, it's, it's very complicated. But the problem with selling on eBay is that you're not going to get the money right away. They hold the money in escrow which is fine. They pay the deposit on eBay, and then you got to figure out how you're going to get the rest of the money from them. What's nice about eBay is that you get a nationwide audience, which is difficult on Craigslist. Craigslist is very localized. You can't even do a nationwide search, but eBay makes that easy. eBay offers guarantees that they will make sure that your vehicle isn't a lemon. They will even offer to buy the vehicle back if something goes seriously wrong with it. And there's all kinds of constrictions and restrictions and etc. on that type of thing, as you can imagine. So I think that if you're just selling a one-off vehicle, eBay probably isn't worth navigating. But if you're the kind of person who does this all the time, I know there are dealers that only sell their vehicles on eBay. There are still paper guides that you can pick up at the store where you sell vehicles. This used to be the main way to sell vehicles back in the day before the internet, but I don't think they have any value at all right now, so skip that. What I did, and I've done this twice this year because I sold the trailer and the van, is I used rvtrader.com. Now, if you haven't seen rvtrader.com, it is the internet's largest directory of RVs for sale. And in fact, all the trader companies are related. There's commercialvehicletrader.com, rvtrader.com, there's a, probably boattrader.com. I haven't looked that up, but I'll bet money that that exists. You just pay a fee to run your ad for a certain amount of time. There's no commission, and the scam level appears to be very low because you can actually report people to RV Trader. Now, it's not guaranteed. There's nobody watching over your transaction to make sure it's safe or whatever, but RV Trader gets an awful lot of eyeballs. And uh, the price, well, let me tell you about the pricing. So RV Trader, 
basically works like this. You upload some photos, you put it in the description, and they walk you through this process somewhat. There's a lot of drop-down boxes to explain what your vehicle is, and of course, for converted vans, the drop-down boxes aren't going to be terribly informative. It's going to ask you what kind of an RV you have, and for most of us, that would be Class B, and then the length and stuff like that. It's the description that's going to matter for you. Now, people do buy conversion vans on RV Trader all the time. I know this because it happened to me, so it is completely viable, but just know that this site is set up for traditional RVs. Well, you've got three options. You've got the basic package, which is an ad for two weeks that allows four photos. It seems expensive, but that actually, I think, is the best package. At $54.95, you're getting thousands and thousands of views of your ad. And the real secret to RV Trader isn't the photos that you put up, although they're important. You do need to put up four compelling photos of your van. One of the outside, one of the inside, and then two that will make people curious. No, the, the actual thing is the description. You are given, I think it's 5,000 words of description. You have to be very good about what you put there. You need to put in enough information that people will be interested. And even though it says you can only upload four photos, you can put links in there. So I put a link to a YouTube video tour of my van, which served two purposes. One was that it gave people who wanted to tour the van a link to do that for free. I didn't have to pay for the higher package that includes the YouTube video. But it also helped me weed people out. I got so many people saying, hey, can you send more photos? All right, the four photos aren't very many, but you've got a whole video tour. What more do you want? So anybody who wrote to me and said, can you send more photos? I would write back and say, sure, what would you like to see a photo of? And not a single one of those persons ever wrote me back. And I think that basically if someone says, hey, can I see more photos? That isn't really someone interested in the van. I think it's somebody just looking for photos. All the people who tried to buy my van, and there were three, asked actual real questions. So that to me was a clue that they were real buyers. If you're in a hurry or you have a vehicle that might be difficult to sell because there's something unusual about it, you may want one of the other two packages. Basic is $54.95. Enhanced is $109.95. But what you get for that is 20 photos, and the listing is live for eight weeks. So instead of two weeks, it's eight weeks. So basically, for double the money, you get four times the life of the listing. So again, for a difficult-to-sell vehicle, that might be worth it. It also lets you add a YouTube video, but I mean, it's just a place to put the link. You can add the link yourself, as I did. So I don't know why that's such a big thing. And then if you've got a really interesting, complicated van or trail or whatever you're selling, I mean, maybe you're not selling a van, then you could look at the best package, which of course they say is the most popular, which I think is only true because they have a lot of dealers selling stuff on here, but it's $200. It allows you to upload 50 photos. It's live for an entire year. It adds a YouTube video, whoop-de-doo, and it's featured on their homepage and in search results. So if somebody searches and you have a match, your listing will come up at the top. And that's true no matter how you search. Again, I think that's more of a dealer thing and, you know, possibly for only high-end vehicles, but it is an option. I have a coupon code for you. I don't know how much longer this will be good as it was a summer promotion, but that code is SAVE25. So that's one word with a capital S, S-A-V-E, 
save 25. That will save you 25%. I used it. It worked. It saved me a little bit of money. Now, the way this works is if someone is interested in your rig, you will get an email and you don't get their actual email address. You get an email from RV Trader, but it's pretty easy that once you start the email process, you can give them a phone number or give them an email. Every single serious person will want to talk to you on the phone. At least that's my experience. So if you think they're serious, go ahead and invest the time in a phone call. Now, in my case, every phone call I had was well over an hour because I turned into podcast mode and (laughs) I basically gave them a whole primer on van life and building vans and the whole thing. And, And I'm fine with that. I mean, that's what I do. It doesn't bother me. But if you're somebody who's just interested in buying a van, you may not want to answer questions that haven't been asked. This is a standard negotiating tactic that I completely ignore because I am not interested in negotiating. I set a price on my van that was firm. This is the price. I'm not interested in negotiating. If you think this van is worth this price, great. You can buy it. If you don't, that's fine. You can go buy another van or maybe you can wait and maybe I'll lower the price if it hasn't sold in a certain amount of time. You know, that's how I am. You're allowed to do whatever the heck you want, of course. Once you've set up your RV Trader listing, here's how you use Craigslist and Facebook. You put the listing in Craigslist and Facebook. You will get a URL to your listing. You can simply go to Facebook Marketplace or Craigslist and put a picture of your van with the link and then they can contact you and you're all set. If you do this and they contact you through Facebook Messenger or through Craigslist system, you could be a little suspicious of that. And you can always redirect them to the RV Trader system, which is a good thing because RV Trader keeps track of all your emails, it keeps them all organized, and it's just a little tiny bit more secure. And once you have somebody who is interested and wants to buy your van, and they probably aren't local because these are nationwide services we're talking about here, get a deposit. If they're asking you to take the van off of the marketplace, basically, you deserve to have a deposit. It's up to you whether you want to make that refundable or not. I make it refundable. My deal is that, hey, give me a $500 deposit on PayPal. I will eat the fees or Venmo or Zelle or whatever. Come see the van. If you like the van, great, we'll continue. If you don't like the van, I will give you your money back. Other places will not give you the money back. So that's completely up to you. And and that's sort of fair because taking the van off the market means that you are losing time on your listing. If you have a two-week listing and it's off the market for four days because someone has to come see it, well, that's worth something. Maybe not 500 bucks, but whatever. For my trailer, it was of only a few thousand dollars, so I just had them PayPal me the whole amount, and I ate the fees. That's just what I decided to do. You could ask them to pay the fees. Again, that's negotiation. But for Pagurus, it was a lot more money, so I asked for a cashier's check. And I was able to deposit it electronically, and that all worked fine. This is the best time to sell your van, and of all the ways I've seen to sell your van, I think RV Trader is worth the $50 or so investment. It made my life a lot easier. But hey, if 50 bucks is something you don't have right now, go ahead and do Craigslist and Facebook Marketplace. Just be aware that you're going to get a lot of false leads. But there are an awful lot of people who buy their vehicles that way, so it's totally legit. Tech Talk, 
I am converting an ambulance. What a shocker. Unless this is your very first time listening to this podcast, you've heard me talk about this ad nauseum. Ambulances have a lot of bolts in them because there's a lot of stuff that needs to be secured. And these bolts go from the inside of the ambulance through the floor down to the outside. So my stretcher brackets are like this. There is a seat that's called the captain's chair that's like this. And some of the cabinetry was secured like this. Now, I'm building this by myself. I do not have a helper. So if I have a bolt that goes through the bottom of the vehicle, how can I hold the nut at the bottom and screw the bolt at the top? I mean, I, unless I'm Plastic Man, I can't. Except that I can because there is a technique that will allow you to do this. So knowing I was going to have to do this, I went to Menards, because I live pretty close to Menards. Harbor Freight would probably be the best place for this. And I bought several pairs of cheap Vice Grips. Vice Grips is a brand name like Kleenex. That's, they're probably more appropriately called locking pliers. Uh, I'll have a picture in the show notes if you don't know what I'm talking about, but Vice Grips, V-I-S-E Grips, you can Google and you'll say, oh, those things. Vice Grips are great. I use them for a lot of things. They are not a precision tool. Professional mechanics probably never use Vice Grips, <laughs> except maybe for this. What you do is you take the Vice Grips and you adjust them so that they will snap tight on the nut. Oh, I mean, you can do it either way, but this is what I did. I'd crawl under the vehicle, then I would go back in the vehicle and use a socket wrench on the bolt. This would prevent the nut from spinning. You have to make sure that the vice grips will hit something as you spin the socket wrench up top. You have to visualize this. I know it might be a little tricky, but it works. It works. I was able to remove all the nuts and bolts that were like this in my ambulance just by doing this trick all by myself, all by myself. And that was a huge thing because I don't have anybody else who can help me. Now, there's one thing to know if you do this technique. Vice grips have a latch that releases the vice grips right at the end. And a couple of times I had it that I put the vice grips on basically upside down so that when I spun the bolt and the nut spun underneath, it hit that latch <laughs> and undid the vice grips and I heard them fall and I was like, uh, and I had to crawl under the ambulance once again. So just a good tip to know that if you have a bolt and a nut on opposite sides of a wall, vice grips can be a way to get them off without needing any help. Product review. I am not Phil Swift, but I am here to talk about Flex Seal. And yeah, so I am not somebody who's trying to sell you Flex Seal. I am somebody who has used it and will give you a live report of whether it's good for you or not. <laughs> I find Flex Seal to be a bit expensive, but it is also fairly useful. Now, the Flex Seal I'm talking about is what I think is the original Flex Seal, which is a spray can of goo. I mean, that's basically what it is. I use the clear, and I use it for a bunch of things, and I actually think it's pretty good. When I put in my Van Air fan, that's a, a round vent with a fan in it, in my NV200, I did use butyl tape. You must use the butyl tape. But then I sealed around it with the Flex Seal, and it never leaked. The Flex Seal worked fine. Over time, it did kind of turn a yellowish brown. It wasn't all that pretty. If you wanted a prettier seal, you would want to do masking tape because that would just at least make that yellowish brown stuff look neat. But it did do the job of sealing. And what I really like about Flex Seal is that it's very liquidy, so it goes into cracks and little crevices and stuff. You don't have to take your finger and kind of smush it in there. It just goes in there 
to begin with. And I think that's this stuff's primary uniqueness, much more than caulk would be or anything like that. I have heard reports that its longevity isn't as good as some other products, but it's so easy to apply. Every year, I would just spray it around again. I'm also using it for places where I drill through the metal body of the van. You'll see people using spray paint or primer to just cover up the raw metal so it doesn't rust. I've been using the Flex Seal and it works fine. I, I actually find it easier to deal with than spray paint because it doesn't seem to fly around as much. Do I recommend Flex Seal? Yeah, I have to say that even though it's like 12 bucks a can, which is expensive, I do think it has enough uses that it's worth keeping a can in your van. I would not recommend it for major sealing jobs. For example, if you are cutting major holes in your roof do not rely on Flex Seal as your primary sealant, but as like an additional sealant to go over whatever you might have up there. I think it works great for that. And it's also something that would be pretty handy to have an emergency. If you're out on a trip and you do have a leak, you could just spray the Flex Seal all over it, and that would probably kill the leak for then until you could fix it properly. Flex Seal. I'll have a link in the show notes, but holy cow, if you haven't seen Flex Seal by now, you're one of those people who never watches TV, and that might be a good thing. A place to visit. Vegas used to be one of my favorite places to go. Back in the early 2000s, it was just a lot of fun walking up and down the strip and seeing all the free shows, the volcanoes, the water fountains, the pirate ship. Remember the pirate ship? Yeah, well, most of that's gone now. Vegas is has changed quite a bit, and it is no longer a place of bargains and free booze and all that. It's just very expensive and very crowded, and it doesn't interest me anymore. But I do have to go there for conventions and stuff every once in a while, and I use it mostly as a jumping-off point to go to, say, Death Valley or Hoover Dam or nearby ghost towns. There's still a lot to see. One of those places to see might be a little less familiar to you, and that is Spring Mountain Ranch, which is a state park just north of Vegas. In fact, it is not too far from Red Rocks, which is the place that a lot of Vegas people go, at least tourists go, when they're tired of casinos and want to see some nature, darn it. Well, then they'll head up to Red Rocks. This is a little bit further up there. The state park is basically a house. It's a th There's land there too, but the main attraction is this house, and it used to be owned by Howard Hughes. This would be his kind of retreat. He would like escape from Vegas. This is before he locked himself up in the hotel. And he lived here, and he would have his um, female companions join him here, and there was a swimming pool, and it's it was kind of a nice place. But visiting it is kind of surreal. It's right outside Vegas, and yet... There are trees, and there's grass, and it's a green place. And the house is fairly interesting. It has a secret room. You have to go through a secret passage to get to it. And it is completely preserved as, say, early 1970s architecture. So it's kind of a museum as well. I just like visiting this place. There's a pond that has cottonwood trees over it that's really nice. And then there are a bunch of outbuildings that have history to them. One of them was an old school. And there was a famous plane crash that happened right near that area where Carol Lombard was killed. And the engines rolled down the mountain and landed near the ranch. It's just one of these really interesting kind of, not overwhelming, this is not a life-changing place to go, but it's it's nice and, and such a contrast to the rest of Vegas that I, I do recommend you actually make an effort to go see it. The ranch way pre-exists Howard Hughes. It has been there for 
couple hundred years at this point. It goes all the way back to the first pioneers of Las Vegas. And it's just very, very peaceful. There's no noise. You just hear the bugs buzzing in the summer air, which is Vegas, so it's like always summer. They even have some theater and events that go on there, too. So I think mostly local Vegas people go here rather than tourists. But hey, if you live in a van, you live everywhere. So consider yourself a local. I'll have a link in the show notes, but you can certainly find it. It's called Spring Mountain Ranch State Park. Just a really pleasant place with some unbelievable mountain views, by the way. If you like if you like to take photos of mountains, yeah, you're going to like Spring Mountain Ranch. The colors are just stunning. Resource recommendation. So, <laughs> yeah, I know. All right, it's Ikea. But it isn't Ikea. I mean, it is Ikea, but... It's a very specific part of Ikea. In the basement of Ikea, you will find Pee Wee Herman's bike... No, sorry, that's the wrong story. In It's not really the basement. In the bottom floor of Ikea, where you pick up your big boxes and you use those unwieldy carts to head to the checkout, there is a section that is the as-is section. It keeps changing its name. It's called something else right now, but everyone will know what you mean if you ask for the as-is section. And it basically sells lightly damaged goods... But boy, some of those are super handy for building out a van. They have countertops galore for really inexpensive prices. My NV200 had bamboo countertops, and I actually made a bamboo waterfall counter. It was actually pretty nice, but the basic reason I did that is because I was able to get this massive piece of bamboo countertop for like 50 bucks. And that was kind of expensive by Ikea as-is standards. In my ambulance, I bought a whole bunch of 20 by 20 doors for 5 bucks, And they're going to be my countertops. Great stuff at a great value. I learned a trick. I talked to a guy who was putting stuff in there. And it turns out that they mark everything down on Monday. So the very best time to go in there and get stuff is Monday morning. And if you see something, I suggest you just buy it because it may not be there long. It's also a good place to pick up cabinets. I've picked up a few sets of their toolboxes. They, they sell these toolboxes that are pretty cheap. It's a screwdriver and a hammer. But people drop them all the time and break the cases. When that happens, they end up in the as-is department and they're half price. Yeah, you throw the case away, but you still have the tools. And they have little battery-powered drills that are cheap, too. Sometimes the same thing happens there. I know everyone has different opinions about Ikea. I like Ikea. I understand that their stuff is maybe not the best built stuff and it can be heavy and all that. I get it. I get it. I really do. But even if you hate Ikea, consider going to the as-is department and you might be able to find a bargain. I mean, last time I was there, they had sinks that were marked down to 30%. And heck, even if you don't find something, you can always get some Swedish meatballs and that'll make the trip worth it. Tales from the Road. Yep, I know you think I forgot Tales of the Road because I did it in a different order, and it, it's only because I read my notes wrong. But anyway, on to the tale. My first car that I ever had was a, uh, a Ford LTD2. I talked about that before, but my second car was really kind of my first car. And that was a 1980 Datsun 510. Remember Datsun? Not heard of that brand name. They're now known as Nissan. But in the rest of the world, they're still known as Datsun. Well, at least in some parts. Anyway, doesn't matter. This was a four-door hatchback at a time when this, this was considered a little car, although it would probably be a midsize today. And I loved this car loved this car. It was a five-speed manual transmission, had all kinds of gauges, more gauges than any other vehicle I've ever owned, except for the Bluebird Wander Lodge. 
but I basically had it in college. And at the time, I went to college in Salem, West Virginia, and also in Miami Shores, Florida. And so that's where I was driving the car. One time when I was driving between Massachusetts and West Virginia, I actually wasn't driving. My girlfriend was. And something happened. She got distracted and on the highway missed a curve and smashed into the guardrail with this car and then basically spun around and rounded off the car. Every single corner of the car hit the guardrails and, well, I thought that was the end of the car. And it was at Easter time, and we had a big basket of Easter candy in the back, and that candy flew everywhere. I mean, you're talking jelly beans and Reese's peanut butter cups, and there was this little robotic rabbit that played the Easter parade song, and I remember it playing that song as we rolled around. Anyway, everybody was fine. There were no injuries. The guardrail took the worst of it, which is a shout-out to guardrails for actually doing what they're supposed to. And immediately after the accident, I was kind of happy in a way. I wasn't happy the car was wrecked at all, but I was happy that we survived and everything was okay. And when the state police rolled up, they found me actually sitting on the car playing Cat Stevens songs on a guitar. And they thought that maybe I had been injured in the accident, but no, my girlfriend explained that that was just how I was. But the car was fairly well damaged. My dad helped me out and we looked at it and uh, we decided it was worth saving. So we had our pair shop do just the basic repairs, just to get it drivable. Not to restore it, just to make it drivable. And when I got it back, it was actually fine. There was nothing wrong with the drivetrain, it still tracked straight. It was just the body that was beat up. And because we didn't want to spend any more money on it than we had to, it came back and it had a black fender on the left front. And the rest of the car was bright yellow. So it looked kind of funny. So I loved this car, and I wanted to do whatever I could to make it nice, quote-unquote. But I was a college student. I didn't have any money. And I was living on Miami Beach at the time, a place called Sunny Isles near North Miami Beach, not too far from where that building just collapsed that was on the news all over the place. It's actually right across the street from the Newport Hotel, if you're familiar with the area at all. But there was nothing there except hotels and gift shops and stuff like that. Except for this one spot right by the causeway, there was kind of this abandoned green area. And I used to explore down there and I found an abandoned houseboat that was kind of tilted. I mean, this was totally a Scooby-Doo houseboat. Like this is the kind of thing you'd explore when you were looking for the swamp zombie or something like that. And being in this abandoned area gave me an idea, which was that I could work on my vehicle here. And I decided to spray paint the entire vehicle. But then when I looked at the cost of spray paint, I realized that I probably couldn't afford that. So I was, how do I turn a yellow vehicle with one black fender into something that looks quote unquote good? And so I decided to spray paint the corners black. I spray painted the other fender on the right side black and then the quarter panels on either side black. And I ended up with a vehicle that looked very much like a taxi. And I was happy with this. I thought it was fun. However, when I was doing the spray painting, the cops rolled up on me, pulled up behind me, lights flashing, and they asked me what I was doing. And I said, I'm spray painting my car. And they looked around, and then they noticed the Massachusetts plates, and we had a conversation about why I was there, and I explained that I lived in the condo building next door and all this stuff. Little did I know that that area was under surveillance as being a drug market. <laughs> because again, it was like the only abandoned place in the area. And I just happened to roll up in the middle of it. And in fact, right after the cops left, 
this other two cars came up and, well, exchanged some things through the windows. So those poor police officers were just a little bit too late. There's no moral to this story. It was just an unusual part of my life, and um, I, that space has been all built up now. The, the houseboat's long gone, and you can't go visit it. But I kind of look back on that with nostalgia, and it makes me remember just what an important role vehicles have had in my life, and maybe yours too, if you're listening to this podcast. Well, folks, thank you very much for listening to episode 87. I'm absolutely thrilled that we have come this far. I am planning special things for episode 100, so stay tuned to hear about that. Music, as always, is by Simon Wagg. And remember what Dudley Moore said, the best car safety device is a rearview mirror with a cop in it.